Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion and welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast. I'm super, super excited to have a great friend and collaborator and former partner from back in my Lincoln years, Randy Siller, joining us today. Randy is the co-founder of Siller & Cohen, and he's taken tremendous pride in the work that he and his partner and his firm have done in helping to protect the life's work of high net worth families and business owners through their stewardship and planning process. Randy began his career as a CPA in one of the big eight accounting firms, went on to obtain his master's degree in tax and develop a deeper expertise in planning and co-founded Siller & Cohn because he recognized the need to provide clients with honest, professional guidance across the entire spectrum of financial solutions. His firm today operates and thrives through the strong service culture that they have developed, and they focus on hiring professionals with credentials across multiple disciplines, such as CFP, SEMA, and MBAs. They've built a national reputation in the advisor community, and I've seen personally Randy speak and present on a number of topics and, again, have learned personally a great deal from him about planning and wealth management. Randy and his wife currently live in New York City and are recently celebrated their 12th wedding anniversary. He has three daughters. Stephanie, who he's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with, is super cool. We'll have to talk about that, who's working on her PhD. Uh, Meredith, a former attorney in LA, who's pursuing a career in psychotherapy and was recently married. And his youngest, Isabella, who's attending Columbia grammar and currently pursuing an acting career. So with that intro, buddy, great to have you. Great to be here, Jeff. It's so good to reconnect. Yeah. So Randy and I spent a number of years together working at the firm that he's currently with and the firm that I spent 23 years with. And I'll say that he had a stellar reputation and was just known to be a bright guy who just executed extraordinarily well. And I think that's probably led to his great success. But if we could spin the reel back a little bit, I'd love to hear about sort of your entrance into accounting and kind of that segue or that fork in the road that led you to wealth management. It was interesting, Jeff, thinking back uh, many, many years ago, I was a tax accountant in Big 8 Accounting and always enjoyed the kind of creative part of the income tax and estate tax area. And Cigna Individual Financial Services was looking for a regional tax director back in 1986 And I had previously interviewed with Cigna on campus. I went to the University of Connecticut two previous times, actually once there, once earlier in my Big 8 career. And they came back a third time, and I guess the third time's the charm. So in 86, I took on that role as being a regional tax director for Cigna. Met an advisor by the name of Jeff Cohen. He had convinced a major university to allow him to run adult education financial planning classes. He wanted technical support. I was kind of a techie back then and uh, helped building the curriculum. So he reached out to me. Together, we built what we thought was a really powerful curriculum. But unfortunately, the university couldn't get enough people to sign up. So Jeff and I were all dressed up with nowhere to go. So in 1988, we decided to use an edited version of what we created and do public seminars together. In the beginning, we did 40 per year. 
The first ones didn't yield any clients, but eventually got some traction. And that's kind of how we started Seller and Cohen and got our, got our practice started. That's super, super cool. I don't think I realized that the seminar business, it's funny, Randy, when you kind of peel things back, there are so many of the very best practices that I know of today, the ones with size and scale like yours, that somehow had seminars back in their early DNA as a form of business development. I'd love to hear more about that and how long it took for you guys to start to get traction and you know, maybe how key a role that was to sort of launch and help you guys take the practice to the next level. Yeah, it really was. I mean, cold calling certainly wasn't for me growing up in, in Big Ada County. I really didn't have a background or the ability to do any of that. My partner, Jeff, actually did that and did that very well. But we decided that the best use of our combined skills was to try to get out in front of as many people as possible and show them what we could do to help them and their families and create value. So we... Uh, decided that we were going to do public seminars and Jeff's ideas, if you're going to do it, you do it 200%. Let's do it in volume. And I would say that it probably took a good 10 seminars to try to figure out what the people attending were really looking for. And before we started to get some traction and bring some clients in from that approach. Yeah, very, very interesting. So as you kind of look at those seminars and, and the feedback that you got, was there kind of a pivotal moment when you, because I know it, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes money. Was there a pivotal moment when you said, hey, we really got something. We think we've kind of figured out the ingredients to running these programs successfully. It's one thing to put bodies in the seats. It's another thing to figure out how to convert and get that face-to-face appointment. Once you go face-to-face, the two of you guys would be phenomenal. I'm sure the conversion rate was great, but were there some learnings along the way or refinements? It's interesting. You bring up something I hadn't thought about in a while, but there's a, a fellow by the name of Steve Tabak who still teaches within our broker dealer. And we had met him through another advisor and he is a sales coach. I had never had any sales training. And I actually thought we were doing a pretty good job with the seminars. I did the open and close. Jeff and I kind of split the middle and I thought we were doing a pretty good job, but our yield rate from the seminars, we weren't really getting many clients. We were a little disappointed. So Steve had done some basic training with us and then we actually asked him to uh, come to a seminar, you know, and critique it. What are we doing well? What aren't we? Why aren't we getting more people interested in becoming clients or having a meeting to talk about becoming a client? And what was very interesting is we had a big crowd that night and As you know, Jeff, you do a lot of public speaking. You know when you're on and when you're not. And Jeff and I were really on that night. And I'm sitting there doing the close of the seminar and trying to convince people to come in and potentially become clients, at least meet with us. And I look away in the back, and there's Steve sitting back there, shaking his head no. And the harder I go in trying to attract people the more he's going no he's just going no 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 he puts his head down so the seminar ends and of course people come up to ask you questions and I was sending them over to Jeff because I wanted to talk to Steve and I went to Steve and I said hey Steve what's uh what's with the shaking of the head he says Randy let me ask you a question do you ever go fishing I said no I'm really not a fisherman he goes I understand why And I said, what do you mean? He goes, Randy, you've got people here interested on the hook and you're throwing the fish back in. And he literally made a couple of changes to our seminar, to the opening and close, and our yield of of appointments and clients went up three times. Yeah, it's incredible. And you know what the funny thing is? Sometimes they say you can't be a prophet in your own hometown. 
and I know you've coached many, many practices and offices and a lot of things during your career when you were kind of, you know, hurtling sort of the leadership and private practice side, sometimes just a little bit of distance and optics gives you kind of a clarity to something that seems obvious to you, but not so to the people involved. So my guess is those little tweaks were insightful and, and probably kind of game changing. And it's kind of neat to, to have had that early on in the program. It's amazing. We feel very fortunate to have found him early in our career. So talk a little bit. I'm really intrigued by this whole notion, and I'll I'll know you'll know the two guys who I'm going to reference. When I think about partnerships, so few of them last because, and maybe I'm wrong and and feel free to challenge me on this. I think it's almost unnatural to have a partnership. People are typically more interested in themselves and how they benefit and what they're contributing. And a lot of times in these partnerships over time, someone just starts to feel like they're doing more than their fair share. And that's usually the beginning of the end. And I look at you guys as one of literally a handful of partnerships that I can think about after three plus decades in the industry where you guys have just built something and there's a mutual respect and collaboration. I don't know if you remember Nick and Ted from San Ramon, California on the Lincoln side, Nick Horn and Ted Santon. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's just this tremendous respect and collaboration. What are the ingredients to a partnership that can endure as long as you guys have been together? And what are some of the learnings you can share with folks who have partners or who are seeking a partner? Well, first, let me say that I think Nick and Ted are both great guys. I know Nick a lot better, but just great people. And I was so happy to see them do so well for so long. You know, it's interesting. We started out just doing seminars and then we became friends. And over the years, we've just gained a tremendous amount of respect and trust in each other. And, you know, trust takes, takes a bit and, and took the longer of probably all of that, which I think is probably true in most relationships. And I think that the friendship and the respect and trust really all coming together. The other thing is that, you know, we split everything 50-50, regardless of who brings it in. And sometimes someone will have a bad year, someone will have a good year. One of the things that's really worked well is when somebody has had a, a spectacular year, it's always the person, the other person that would go to them and say, I know we're splitting things 50-50, but I think we need to do a special bonus for you this year because you've had such a great year. It was never, ever the person with the great year having to go to the other person saying, hey, I think I earned more. So there was always a sense. And I think that before it ever became that, where the person that had the better year felt they were not being appreciated or compensated appropriately, the other person would come in first. But what's interesting is never has the person having the better year asked for a full accounting or anything even close to it. A small adjustment was good enough. It was just the concept of it, the feel of it, and that that other partner came forward. And those are very important things and, and maybe a little bit unusual and equal and really important on the other side, too, if someone was having a really bad year. Never, ever did the partner not having that bad year go back and say, you should earn less this year. Never happened. The partner having a bad year would always feel terrible, and the partner having either a decent or good year always spend time making the other partner feel, feel good about it. And over 30 years, believe me, I've sat in all these different seats. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to hear you articulate it that way, and it's not surprising at all because of what I know about Jeff and what I know about you and the kind of guys you are. And it it makes even more sense on the heels of two words you said as you sort of introduced the theme, friends or friendship and trust, right? So what I've always found is when you're in a partnership, 
the ones that really work is where you're almost more concerned about your partner than you are yourself. And that's what's so unusual. And when you have that foundation of trust and caring and not to get too touchy feeling or anything, but when you kind of love the person you're in business with, you know that it's all going to come out good in the end. And there are times when I'll carry you and times when you'll carry me, but in the end, we're going to win more together than we will apart. It's, it's highly unusual, but it's a credit to both of you. Credit to both of you. Well, thank you for that, Jeff. Yeah, it's, look, it's a lot of work. It's like another marriage. And, you know, we have our moments, but most of them are very good, very good moments. So, you know, one of the things I always felt that was unique about the process that you and I grew up in was the technical competency. And I think you and Jeff took it to another level. But I guess if you, as you think about specialty markets or how you put yourself out there to the community of investors and business owners and wealthy families, having the skill set to, to really help solve problems is kind of a specialty market. So talk a little bit about how you guys have promoted the firm and kind of what that unique planning skill set is and how that's been kind of core to the success that Stiller & Cohen has had over the years. Well, it's interesting you say that, Jeff, because as I, as I think about that, I would say, frankly, that's one area that we haven't done as good a job in as, as we could have. And we've struggled with it over the years. I've always been concerned with being pigeonholed by specializing. And by specializing in a certain area, we would be missing out on other opportunities. Then, of course, I look at companies like the Cheesecake Factory that have built quite a national chain, and they serve a lot more than cheesecake. So obviously, they figured it out. I've never quite gotten comfortable there. The best I can do to describe our firm is that we serve high net worth and very high net worth families. We do comprehensive, multi-generational estate, business succession, executive benefit, financial independence, and investment planning. And our goal is to provide peace of mind for our clients. The problem is that's a mouthful and it's really hard to fit on a business card. But that's really what we do and how we describe ourselves. I guess a differentiator for us has been, you know, my dad was a, was a school teacher and I have a lot of respect for teachers. Um, I enjoy teaching myself. But I also believe in, in being educated and constantly learning. I think once you think you know it all, it's time to retire. So we're, Jeff and I attend a lot of different, uh, we teach, but we also attend a lot of different sessions to keep learning. And we have a pretty deep staff, and we require that our staff eventually become either CFPs, MBAs, Certified Investment Management Analysts, or a combination of those things, because knowledge is power. So I think the way we present ourselves out there is that we, uh, we care about the client. It's all about the client. It's all about, as you know, the, the term serve first is, is meaningful. We both grew up under that. And the concept of learning and constantly educating ourselves allows us to, to have good, thoughtful discussions with our clients and lead them to good, thoughtful answers that are the right things to do for their family. Yeah, that all, that all makes great sense. All makes great sense. So over the time period that you guys have been together, and I don't want to age or date you or me, but we've both been in the business for a while. Are there any sort of pivotal moments or changes that you've seen that you think have been impactful, whether it's at the industry level or even for Siller and Cohen and the way that you guys run your practice? Well, on the industry level, certainly over the last, uh, let's call it a couple of decades, we know it's been a little bit more than that. You know, there've been a lot of changes, right? I mean, from technology to the movement away from proprietary products 
overall, I think the industry movement has been in a direction that's much better for clients. I'm really glad to see it. Um, I'm glad to see the movement and the consolidation into some of these larger RIAs where because of leverage, we're able to access more resources on a more affordable basis for our clients. I think technology has actually made our jobs better. And I'm always surprised to hear that some advisors are afraid of the technology, that clients are going to want to do things on their own. And I guess what surprises me about that is while there have been a lot of changes, the one thing that I think has always stayed the same is that once again, it's about developing a trusted relationship with the client and being that trusted advisor. Technology can never replace good advice or that or the that trust that you develop and the ability to help clients make the right decisions. Technology can aid us in our ability to do that. We have to spend we can spend less time doing other things and spend more time on the advice piece of it. So I think that for the most part, the changes we've seen in the industry are very much in the favor of the client. And I think it's very good. Yeah, no, that makes great sense. And I also think it makes sense that you kind of have to look at the, that trusted relationship, the way you described that as the hub and the, the most core component, right? So around the periphery, whether it's technology or service experiences or reporting or investments, you know, all those things are sort of on the periphery, but it, it all stems from this solid trusted relationship as you guys being the two people that they really most think of to help solve their needs, to guide them and everything else. And with that trusted relationship as a foundation, I think that's how you kind of secure clients for life. Anything else, you know, and some people rely on investments, they rely on performance, they rely on tools or technology. Those things can come in and out of favor, but a trusted relationship is something that in theory would endure an awful lot and probably has endured an awful lot. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because when we do client review meetings, we schedule it all out for the year and kind of plan and have an agreement with a client as to how often we're going to do formal review meetings a year. And we have a team that, that tracks all that and, and keeps us to our word and schedules those meetings for us. And what I've noticed is over the years, um, if we have an hour and a half review meeting with a client, that the amount of time we spend on the investment discussion has become less and less over time. And it's much more about what's going on with the family and then all the other related areas of advice, whether it's in the estate planning area, income tax planning, whatever it may be. I would say that in our review meetings, at least three quarters of the meetings have nothing to do with their investment portfolio and have everything to do with life and all of the things that, um, you know, that they're facing, the good and the bad. And then the planning aspects that become so important as they reach different phases in their lives and their careers. That makes a lot of sense. And I'd like to sort of peel that back a little bit further. So when you go through these reviews, are there other members of the team that are sitting in on reviews and doing pieces and parts? Do you and your partner conduct meetings together or do you kind of have separate aspects of the book? I'm curious as you kind of get a little bit more granular, who does what in these reviews and how that might impact bandwidth and or future bandwidth as you guys have continued to grow. Yeah, so again, it's evolved over time. So I want to be clear that anyone listening that's newer in the business, this is something that we have built over time. And it's uh, we've built it to the point where it's very efficient now. So basically what we have is Jeff or I 
not together, are the lead on a, for a particular family. And then we have a second chair for each family that is assigned to that family. So we have three second chairs in our firm. They're all CFPs. Uh, some ha are also certified investment management analysts. Um, so in every meeting, it's me and a second chair or Jeff and a second chair. And then behind them, there's a five-person operations team that does all of the operations work. And then we have someone who oversees them, the compliance, and, and runs the firm for us. Every meeting, it's me or Jeff and one of those second chairs in there. Um, and we have a very detailed review meeting internally before the review meeting with the client to make sure we have everything lined up and set up. And the second chairs have worked with Jeff and I long enough now that they know by client pretty much what we're going to want to see in each meeting. But we do a pre-meeting anyway because Jeff or I may have some new ideas or some things that we think the client should be aware of or a new planning concept we want to bring to them. But in every single meeting, we have a second chair. I so think it's important. And, and this, this really differs tremendously based on where someone sits in terms of demographic, you know, the average net worth of, and complexity of their clients. But what are your thoughts, Randy, on bandwidth when you think about an advisor who's dealing in a more high-touch relationship like you, like you are with higher average net worths and more complexity? How many families or households, whether you want to speak to what you care for today or what you think an advisor can care for if they've got support, the second chair and the ops team, what are your thoughts on bandwidth? It's changed over time. And interestingly, I met uh, somebody running an extremely successful, fast-growing practice that has me thinking even a little bit differently. And that happened in the last few weeks. So right now, Jeff and I handle about 80 families each. So this is not a, you know, it's 160 family, really. Now, those families may have a lot of branches. So there might be a lot of different meetings and calls. But it's really 80 core families at this point uh, where we do everything for them. And I would say that that's handleable if you have a deep enough team. And we've been able to sustain some really nice growth over the years. And we don't feel that. And, and we also try to think ahead, meaning that right now we probably have one and a half more operations people than we need. That's on purpose. I don't want people overwhelmed and I want plenty of room for growth. One of them but possibly grow into a second chair and also to make sure that we have plenty of bandwidth because we never know how many new clients will be coming on in any one year. And the growth has been very nice over the last few years. Um, so I feel very comfortable at that level. Now, to give you another idea of a firm that's growing faster than us and that's a little bit bigger than us, they have a completely different philosophy. Let me step back before I go there. One other piece in this, for smaller clients, over time, we will transition them to the second chair. So the check, second chair in those situations handles the first and second chair role. And basically, I talk to the client about, you know, as we continue to grow and grow our team, we need to give them opportunities uh, as they've earned it. If you're comfortable with this, I would like to give this person the opportunity to really you know, run the meetings with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'll always be around if you want to ask questions, but they've really, you know, earned that right in our eyes. I want to make sure they've earned it in your eyes. So over time, we gradually have moved some clients directly underneath these second chairs. 
Yeah, and that's and you bring up a great point, by the way. I want to just jump in there because I think it's important. So we can make certain decisions, we can do certain things, but the messaging around the things that we're doing is also critically important. So you're not telling the client, you're too small, you no longer meet my minimum. What you're saying is Susan or Bob has been in our meetings for the last five years. They become a partner in the firm. They're highly capable as an advisor. And while I may not be sitting on the meetings, I like what you said. I'm available, I'm accessible. And by the way, my partner and I are overseeing everything that takes place in your account. You're just having someone new as a lead. So you can make them feel comfortable and, and sort of empowered. And if somebody objects, they object. And I'm guessing it's, it's not likely that they do object. Yeah, we, we really only do or we already know the answer is going to be yes. And, and the beauty of it is it's, it's more than just positioning for our firm. It's actually what I like about it is that it, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's truth. It's that in order for me to keep these second chairs, they need those opportunities. And I do feel that the second chair is ready to handle the account. So the beauty of it is it not only allows us to keep growing, but it's, it's good for the client because it, it allows me to make sure that second chair is going to be around because they're growing. And I think that's good for everybody. So there's a lot of, so the beauty of the message is the message is built in truth. And then it also frees us up to keep growing the firm. Yeah, it makes tremendous sense. Makes tremendous sense. So as you look towards the future, it's always, I find it interesting, you know, when you think about someone who's had the success that, that your shop has, uh, and you think about goal setting, it's funny. Some of the most aggressive people with the aggressive goals are the most successful ones I know. And it's less because doubling the shop is going to change their lifestyle. It's really more about pride and the number of families they're serving and the quality of advice and just feeling like they're challenging themselves to be their best. What, is, what does growth and what do future goals look like at your shop? Well, you know, my, my focus right now, our focus right now, we have our annual growth goals, and I don't think those are going to change. I don't see those changing. They've been pretty consistent for the last 10 years. I think they'll be the same for the next 10 years. But I, we have more of a focus now on growing the staff. We want the staff to become extremely knowledgeable and very good at understanding, listening to clients' issues and concerns and helping them to resolve them and become better and better at that. That will make us a stronger firm, a deeper firm. And 10 years from now, when Jeff and I decide, you know, maybe we want to slow down and maybe what we're going to do at that point is there are some families that we're just so close with that we probably would never retire from. You know, maybe 10 years from now, we turn everything over to the second chairs other than maybe 10 relationships each that we're just always going to be involved with because of the closeness with the family. So that's a main goal right now. But as far as the growth part of it is concerned from a, from a revenue or firm standpoint, those numbers will stay the same, but really, really focused on growing the people, growing the team so it gets bigger and stronger and so that in 10 years, when we do want to slow down, I know our clients are in really, really good hands. Yeah, there's, there's stewardship involved in that as well, right? This is about continuity to kind of have a legacy to make sure that the values and the skill and the talent and the planning that you guys have delivered will carry on with the next generation if and when you guys decide to slow down a little bit. And I also love, I mean, it's called the Evolving Advisor Podcast, right? So one of the key themes that we talk about is how do people sort of gradually evolve from an advisor to a CEO? And I think you just articulated it perfectly. 
It's this whole war for talent, surrounding yourself with talented folks who embrace not only the values you guys have, but you impart the knowledge and the teaching to help them become great advisors. And, you know, you can work with, you know, a fewer number of choice, more substantive type relationships. And that legacy will continue for the firm to continue to grow. And it's, it's a great, great path. And I guess maybe that's an interesting segue, Randy, to talk about advice you would have for advisors or teams that are aspirational. Someday they'd like to run a firm like Siller and Cohen with the size and the scale and the talent. Are there any key learnings that you could share that might help them think about how they could go to the next level, whatever the next level means to them? You know, some of these are very basic, but it's, um, I don't know, I'm going to really date myself and go back to the Vince Lombardi days when with the Green Bay Packers, it was uh, not that we're going to run complicated plays, we're going to run them over and over again, and we're going to run them perfectly, and we're going to do them better than anybody else. Can you teach the Cleveland Browns how to do those things? Because for decades, I've ended Sundays depressed and heartbroken, and I come optimistic like an idiot only to be heartbroken again a week later. Well, I'm a I'm a constantly optimistic and and often heartbroken Rams fan, but maybe not at the same level. Okay, not at the same level. So I feel for you. Although we had a good night last night. So a, a couple of things. You know, it's very basic, but it's important. Do the right job for the client and let the pay take care of itself. Right, Jeff. You and I grew up under that together. The serve first philosophy. Do the right thing for the client. Let the pay take care of itself. And you'd be amazed at how many introductions you're going to get to other clients by just doing the right thing. That's number one. Number two is build a team of quality professionals around you. Don't try to do everything yourself and don't hire people. I've seen people hire people that, you know, they're afraid to hire people with great talent that might have a talent that, that they're better than them at something. That's who I want on my team. I want people who have skill sets that complement mine and that do things or will eventually learn to do things better than me. That's what's going to make me and the firm better. Don't be afraid of that. Embrace that. Hire the best talent you can. Every good organization out there that's had tremendous growth and tremendous success has really, really good people. It's not just about me. It's not just about Jeff. It's about the team bringing the right job and doing the right job for everyone, giving each other energy and helping each other pick each other up when we fall down. And then once you hire the right people, train and motivate the heck out of them. Keep investing in your business. I've always found the more I invest in, your, in my business, even when I was afraid to do it early on, the more we grow. So do the right job, hire the right people, train the heck out of them, and really serve your clients first, last, and always. And, and the business will grow over time. One other thing, if you have an opportunity to join a team that you know is high quality, does the right job by their clients, do that. A lot of people have built very successful businesses after working for other folks and learning a lot from people who've already built a successful practice. Learn from the best and try to connect with them, whether you invite them to lunch, even if they're not hiring, ask them to be a mentor, whatever it may take, learn from the best. I know a lot of, I know Michael Jordan and, uh, I'm a big basketball fan, and LeBron James have been mentors to a lot of young basketball players, and they talk all the time about how much it helped accelerate their progress. It's true in our profession as well. Yeah, there's some wonderful pearls of wisdom, so thank you for sharing those, and I couldn't agree more. You said it now, and you said it a little bit earlier. I think you made a comment that you might have sort of one extra ops person on the team. 
And then you talked about sort of investing in, in people and talent. I've always said, you know, you need to invest ahead of the curve. You need to invest for the business that you want to be, not the business that you are today. And I think in our industry, there's a propensity for people just to kind of draw out income. But this notion of retained earnings and investing in staff, investing in technology, when you do it thoughtfully, it pays out, you know, tremendous, tremendous dividends in lots of ways. And that notion of being a business owner and investing back in this business, I think is a great way to sort of seed future growth. So thank you for all the great, great thoughts and great ideas. Uh, really, really appreciate it. It's always great to connect and even more exciting now to see the, the musical side of Mr. Randy Siller as we hear you sing, I believe, is it The Lion Sleeps Tonight? Yes, this is certainly going to be the most memorable part. And uh, I think I shared with you earlier that I have uh, three wonderful daughters and you talked a little bit about them. One of them who's uh, still living with us, who's 10. Her name is Isabella. And when I practice singing, she's very clear with me that it's something that I should not even consider doing for a living or doing in front of any other human being. So this is going to be very interesting. Also, Adrian, my father happened to have an amazing voice, but it clearly skipped me. The Lion Sleeps Tonight happens to be a song that is one of uh, my uh, favorites of my 10-year-old daughter. And it's not an easy song to sing. But I will do my best. I am going to stand up, stand up and stretch a little bit because my daughter explained to me that that is a better way to sing. And we'll give it a shot, Jeff. I'll sounds, do this a cappella. Sounds fantastic, buddy. It's all yours. All right. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. In the jungle, the quiet jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Along the way, along the way, along the way, along the way. Near the village, the peaceful village, My darling, don't fear my darling. The lion ran away. Bye. Hi. That was great. That's our version. I love it. I love it. Was that your little princess singing along with you or no? Hey, that was Isabella. Can you say hi, Isabella? Hi. Hi, honey. Thank you for singing. You were great. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.